organizing notes. Thanks for that, Dennis. Thank you. Be safe. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. Parmi ces gens qui me bousculent Étourdi désemparé, je reste là Quand soudain je me retourne, il se recule Et la foule vient me jeter entre ses bras Emporté par la foule qui nous traîne, nous entraîne Écrasé l'un contre l'autre, nous ne formons qu'un seul corps Et le flot sans effort nous pousse enchaîner l'un et l'autre et nous laisse tous deux épanouis, enivrés et heureux. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food health and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome a fellow registered dietitian, Dr. Dana Ellis Hunnis. She has worked as a clinical inpatient dietitian at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center since 2005. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. Dr. Hunnis completed her BS at Cornell University with a double major in nutrition and human biology, health, and society. She completed her RD training at Emory University Hospitals and Health System in Georgia, and she received both an MPH, Master's of Public Health, and PhD from UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Her dissertation research focused on how climate change affects food security in Ethiopia, and we are going to be discussing her experiences as well as her hot-off-the-press book, Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. It was just published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dana. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and I wonder if we could just start by my asking you how you found dietetics to be your career of choice. Well, when I was an undergrad, I actually had to choose a major right off the bat, right before I even arrived. And I was really interested in human biology. I thought maybe I would go pre-med. However, I wasn't all that particularly interested in touching people or blood or things like that. So I took a bunch of courses and one of them happened to be a nutrition course. And I just fell in love with it. I thought it was fascinating how what we eat can make us feel better or potentially make us feel worse. And so I fell into it that way just took all the nutrition courses that were available and ended up deciding, hey, you know, I can be a dietitian, get paid to do this. And so that's kind of what led me into dietetics. I was always into nutrition and healthy eating anyway. I grew up as a dancer, just very interested in health, and I just fell into it that way and then took the next step, which was a dietetic internship, and learned everything I needed to know in order to become a dietitian. Your story is so similar to mine in that I had to take a course in nutrition through the home economics department. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in other areas. But once I took that first nutrition course and I thought, oh, my gosh, I can use food to heal mm -hmm. or prevent disease. This was magical. And I thought, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I've never regretted it. It's a wonderful field of study. And your professional path 
took a little bit of a different turn in that you studied internationally and you mm-hmm. went and worked in Ethiopia. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, so when I did my master's, you know, a lot of dietitians they do a master's in nutrition, which is a lot of like what we learn in undergrad. I was more interested in kind of the well-being of the public at large. So that's what I did my master's in and then I decided to do a PhD and I was very much interested in climate change and food security and what was happening. And it was still a pretty under-discussed topic at that time. It was very difficult to find a lot of people studying that, even at UCLA of all places. And so actually my minor in my PhD, which was in urban planning, I had a wonderful professor named Eve Commons, and he has done a lot of work in Eastern Africa with Oxfam, the World Bank, World Vision, which is who I did my dissertation research with, and he was just really pivotal in getting me out there. So what I did was I went to Addis, which is the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, and I worked with World Vision, and what I did was I went out into the field and I interviewed people who had come from their rural villages into the city so that they could earn cash income. And the reason that they were doing this is because they couldn't grow enough crops on their field. Now, Ethiopia is one of those countries where over 80% of the people rely on rain to grow their food. They don't have the infrastructure that a lot of us have in the United States, the farmers here, with irrigation and all kinds of other inputs. So there, they don't even own their land. They rent it from the government and then they have to pay taxes on it even if they don't grow any food and so these people are coming into the city because they need to earn some kind of cash some kind of money to buy food if they can't grow enough or school supplies those were some of the major things that people were telling me and of course I had an interpreter because unfortunately I don't speak Amharic but just the people I met there along my way were just beautiful of heart beautiful of mind and even they seem to understand the, the notion that if you don't have enough rain, you can't grow enough food. And so are there wells and has there been a movement to provide infrastructure to tap into underground aquifers and provide irrigation? I mean, I think that's been an ongoing issue over there. However, at the moment, I mean, there's a terrible civil war. So I think a lot of these infrastructure issues have been put on the back burner. But In Eastern Africa, a lot of infrastructure and things like that actually tend to come from communities and them raising capital to be able to buy these inputs. There's not necessarily a whole lot of governmental subsidies or payment for that kind of thing is what I've learned from my research. Now, things may have changed in the last five to ten years. However, at the time, that wasn't really something the government really paid a lot for. Right. So how long were you there? I was supposed to be there for a month. I was interviewing 60 individuals, and I actually, after about two weeks, got all the data that I needed. Everything was converging, so I stayed for two weeks, even though I I was supposed to stay for a month. So you were there for a really relatively short time, and yet it sounds like that experience had a lasting impact. Oh, it absolutely had a lasting impact. I I mean, I still keep in touch with the man who interpreted for me. I still keep in touch with a young man who World Vision introduced me to. And so I try to keep some ears over there just to understand a little bit about what's going on. But it absolutely changed my perspective on a lot of things. There's just sometimes you have these life experiences. You can't quite explain it to people, but... Even if it is for a fairly short time, it can really change your outlook on life and and the way you do things. Absolutely. And I'm curious, too, because many times when we are finished with our dietetic training, we tend as dietitians to get our first job in a hospital setting. And for me, my hospital experience was also life-changing. And I just wondered how your hospital experience affected the way you see the world today as well? Well, I have been quite fortunate in that I work at a major medical center where we have some of the world's sickest patients. And I say that because we have people from all over the world fly here for transplants. Mm -hmm. I had a patient once who flew in from 
Dubai for a heart transplant, and I've had patients from all over the world. So I think in that sense, I see a lot of diversity in the patients, a lot of diversity just even from patients who live in Los Angeles from all over. You know, you have some from downtown Los Angeles or East Los Angeles who maybe are not so health literate, and then you have some people from Santa Monica or Brentwood who are extremely wealthy and can afford the best care possible. So I think that experience has definitely opened my eyes to the idea that there's a lot of differences in people, but on the inside, we're all really the same. We all have the same organs and we all have the same basic needs in life, health, nutrition, mobility, things like that. And so definitely working in an academic medical center where research is really appreciated has given me, I think, a wealth of knowledge, but also just opportunities to explore and research things that I'm particularly interested in as well. Right. So you are really focused on, especially with your students, the interrelationships between climate change, dietary patterns, and food security. And I'm curious to know how you came to connect those dots. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good question. So I think really when it comes to food security and looking at where and how do we grow our food around the world and how are we going to be able to grow enough food in a changing climate where drought is now becoming more prevalent in certain areas and then floods at the the very next week, removing all that soil that we desperately need to grow the food. I think just seeing all of this play out and reading all the literature on it from scientists who study this daily I think has really made those interconnections real. And then when you think about how food is also medicine and keeps us healthy, as you said earlier on, it's just making those connections, I think, for me was really a no-brainer. It was sort of like, oh, a light turned on. It was, hey, the foods we eat not only affect us, but they also affect how the planet is going to sustain itself and also vice versa the health of the planet is going to affect the health of our foods and us as well. It's such an interesting connection, and I think it's so important for us to be thinking, as you described, how it works both ways. I remember when I read some research, I believe it was done by a researcher in Nebraska, who had looked at the nutritional differences that climate is pushing us towards. So, for example, less protein, less of the micronutrients that might have been in food, say, 50, 100 years ago, because of the increased CO2 in the environment, that actually reduces the nutritional quality of the food that we eat. Yeah, that actually doesn't surprise me. But also, I think about soil health. If you think about the fact that we are losing topsoil at these ridiculous rates, and we may not have topsoil in the next 50 to 60 years, which is important for growing food, I think it really brings it home. You know, we just have to take better care of the planet in terms of what are we putting out into the environment, but also what are we keeping in the soils? Right. Well, I want to jump to your book because it's a wonderful resource. The title, again, is Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. And it's a really different book because you see recipes and you think, oh, there must be some food recipes in here. Not at all. You've got really a recipe for actions that we can take to protect our health, our planet, and our food system. Tell me, what was that burning desire in you that led you to write this book? I would say it's a a twofold issue. One was I had just given birth to my son and I had just finished my PhD, and so I had all of this information, and I'm looking down at him and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like I just want this planet to stay healthy and safe for him. So really, I would say my number one motivation was my son, and I think any parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle could, out there could feel the same way, is we want this planet to sustain our children and our you know, nieces and nephews. So that was number one, and I think number two, honestly, was after learning everything I had learned, I fell into this, you know, I hate to use the word, but at the same time, it's the truth, depression. I was so depressed about everything I had learned, and the only way I knew how to cope with it was to write about it. And so by writing about it, I was able to get 
these emotions out on paper and think it through and say, hey, what have I learned that would counteract some of these things? What are things that individuals can do today, the moment we look at our plate, to really make a difference? And so I think I had a call to action, which is why I started writing, and it fell into a book, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Dana Ellis Hunnis. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She has worked as a clinical inpatient dietitian at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center since 2005. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. And she is the author of the book we are now discussing titled Recipe for Survival, what you can do to live a healthier and more environmentally friendly life. So, Dana, I'm really glad you mentioned how you were feeling. And there is a lot of doom and gloom. I think people are exhausted from it. We have to be aware and have a collective sense of urgency, I think. But at the same time, action is the antidote to despair. And you give us lots of action steps that we can take. And I struggle between, yes, there's a role for the individual, and there's also a role for policy. And of course, it's harder to work in policy arenas because it takes so long sometimes, or you might take two steps forward, one step back, and that's just the nature of policy. So you empower the reader by giving us steps that we can do every day to make a difference. And I was thrilled to see a fellow dietitian care about some of the very issues that keep me up at night. For example, plastics. You have a good section here that helps consumers navigate the plastics that we encounter every day. And I love the way you describe, we wanna reduce, reuse, and refuse the plastic. And then, of course, there's the whole myth of plastic recycling. So why don't you tell me how you became alarmed about the plastic use and why you decided to dedicate a chunk of the book to that subject? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll get to that in two seconds. I did want to address your question or comment about policy. I mean, I absolutely agree that policy is a big picture ticket item, and that needs to happen as well. Unfortunately, what we saw at COP26 in Glasgow was a deferment or a kick the can down the road. So when policy and government leaders don't act, it's up to us, the individual, to do it, which is why I did write the book all about that. But as far as the plastic is concerned, you know, it's interesting. I would say I was just as guilty as the next person with my plastic use for the longest time. I was like, oh, it's a bottle. I can recycle it. But I watched a documentary about the plastic use that we all do and kind of where this plastic goes. And then I dived deeper into it, no pun intended, since a lot of it ends up in the ocean. But I think just reading and learning more about this and kind of how this plastic waste ends up in the ocean and, and how the sea creatures in the ocean accidentally eat it and it harms them and, and eventually it can harm us, I think it really just hit home that... Yes, it requires industry and people in industry to curtail the use of plastic, but it also depends on us because as the buyer, we are saying it's okay. Plastic's okay. It's okay to have this much plastic in the environment and in our daily lives. So I think there needs to be some sort of collaboration among individuals and industry in general. Right. What I have found is sometimes it's hard to reject something on the shelf that you really want to purchase but it's in plastic and it boils down to what's more important here am I going to get this product and enjoy it or am I going to say no I really can't contribute to the rising use of plastic I also like to contact manufacturers and say I really want to purchase your product but I just can't do it please put something in glass that something that truly is recyclable Right, absolutely. And in fact, that was one thing that we did change in our family is we did used to buy shampoos and conditioners in plastic bottles, but now we buy bars that come in little paper containers and those we can recycle. And then we also, we went to a CSA. So instead of getting lettuce in the big plastic clamshells, 
now we get the lettuce from a local farm and we process it ourselves. And there is something, I mean, I'll be honest, it's almost impossible in this day and age to be 100% plastic free unless you are just beyond diligent about it. But every effort possible, in my opinion, makes a difference. Absolutely. And that's what I love about your book, too, is you, well, for one thing, you've got questions and action steps for people. But you also say, you know, you don't have to do everything all at once, that any change you make is a change for the better. And so you remove that guilt factor, I think, that tends to creep into any of these discussions. It's like, okay, let me help see what I'm doing and then help me move towards better behavior for the planet and us. Right. Yeah. Self-efficacy is a huge motivating factor for people. When people get this sense of, hey, I can do that, and then try something else and see, hey, I can be successful at this too, I do think that that really helps people kind of get on the, I don't know if the bandwagon is the right term, but it just helps motivate people to try something new and try something different and add on, build on to what they're already doing. So I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of the idea of, look, you don't need to be perfect, but definitely do something and do what you can do today and see that you can be successful at it. And I think some of this comes from the fact that I have psychologists in my family. My great uncle was a a very famous psychologist and my mother is a psychologist. And so I do think if I hadn't been a dietitian, I might have been a psychologist. And as you know, when you're a dietitian, sometimes you are a psychologist too when it comes to food and weight and, and things of those matters. But certainly, I did want to empower people and try and and explain to them, look, it's not about perfection. It's a journey. And do your best. I'm so glad you brought that field of study into this because it's so important to change the way we think and how we feel if we're really going to see success and true resiliency moving forward. I want to jump back to policy for just a moment because you do bring up two areas you recommend advocacy, which is great. Certainly letting our political leaders know where we stand and why and being a reference for them. But also you talk about dietary guidelines. And I am so glad you brought that up. So we've got U.S. dietary guidelines and all the countries in the world, pretty much all, have dietary guidelines that they recommend for their populations to prevent disease. But you take issue, and rightfully so, that our dietary guidelines do not fold in sustainability and environmental factors. And it wasn't for lack of trying, was it? No, the Dietary Guideline Committee, the DGAC, they are a group of scientists who come together and they look at the data and they do recommend issues with regards to health and and also sustainability. And that was true for the 2015 to 2020 guidelines. But unfortunately, when it got past the committee and went before Congress to ratify or, uh, you know, make sure that the guidelines were acceptable to everyone, unfortunately, what the committee recommended was not taken up by the final guidelines, which I found quite, I don't know if depressing is the right word for this, but it bothered me a lot. (laughs) So I had to write about it for sure. Well, it was quite illuminating to see the process and realize that there is a push. And I think that there is a little bit of momentum and it's growing and we need to keep pushing so that one day in the next five years, when our next dietary guidelines come out, maybe there will be so much public and professional pressure that we will start to see some of those environmental recommendations. It's urgent, truly. Yeah, I mean, I would, I definitely hope so. I, I really hope that there is enough noise amongst the, the people and, you know, calling their representatives or their senators and saying, hey, you know, this isn't right. I mean, two-thirds of Americans believe that there should be sustainability issues in the dietary guidelines. So, I mean, absolutely, if the government is supposed to listen to the will of the people and our opinions, then for sure the next go-around should have that as part of the guidelines. Right. Well, we've got about five minutes left, and I want to give you a chance to bring something or more items out from this book that you want to make sure that our listeners know. Well, I do think if someone was to ask me, what's the number one thing that I can do today that won't necessarily change my entire lifestyle 
because, you know, that can be a lot of effort. What is the number one thing that I can do today to help with the environment? I would tell them the number one thing that you can do right now is to, at your next meal, choose more plants, a more plant-based diet. And choose one that is heavy in legumes and hopefully more organic foods. Look for foods that are from a regenerative farm. There are third-party certifications out there with like the Rodale Institute, for example, where they do certify products as being regeneratively grown because what you put on your plate and what you put in your body can make all the difference for your own health and all the difference for the planet if enough people are doing it. So I think that would be kind of my number one take away from the book is don't think this is hopeless. Really look at your next meal as an opportunity to do the environmentally friendly thing because If you think about it, a cheeseburger is like driving 20 miles and taking three months' worth of showers, whereas if you had a legume burger, for example, instead, that might be taking a one-mile drive and three days of showers. So really, you can make a huge amount of difference just with one meal. What led you to frame your recommendations in the form of recipes. That's quite unique. And it's really a a wonder. You've got 21 recipes and they're so digestible, you know, with great recommendations. You've also got great references and notes so people can go back and learn more if they want to. But how did you come to format the book like this? It's really creative. Thank you. I think part of it was that I'm a dietitian and I answer questions about nutrition and food all the time. And I think I look at life in some ways as a recipe. Here's a recipe for a healthy life. Here's a recipe for a healthy planet. So when I think of recipes, I think of steps. I think of here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and here's your final item. And so I think when I was writing the book, I was like, well, how do I be prescriptive without sounding too medical or without sounding too scientific because I want people to read the book. I don't want them to be scared off. So when I think of the term recipe, I find that to be quite, as you said, digestible or, or friendly. And so I think I came up with this idea, kind of a play on words, so to speak, because it just felt like the right mixture of prescription with doability. Yeah. I agree. And not to lead our listeners astray, but you also do have what weekly meal plans might actually look like. So there is that food element. But I like the way that you've woven in so many other factors that people might say, oh, is this going outside the scope of practice for a dietitian? You've probably heard that. But Mm -hmm. absolutely, if the clothing that we buy and the packaging that we accept or not impacts the health of the planet, it is ultimately going to affect the health of us. Absolutely. I mean, we ingest things not just through our mouth. We ingest certain oils. You put them on your skin, and they can actually give you some of the essential nutrients that you need. So I hear what you're saying. Maybe it would be out of the scope of practice. However, I would say that my overall practice as both a dietitian but also as someone who has studied climate change and all the various aspects of planetary health, how are we contributing or not contributing, I would say it all lends itself to being part of the same holistic idea. Absolutely. I think that it is very much the scope of practice for all healthcare providers to be weaving in issues of climate. So Thank you for this book. We need to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Dana Ellis Hunnis. She has worked as a clinical inpatient dietitian at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center since 2005. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA, and she is the author of a very action-oriented book titled Recipe for Survival, What You Can Do to Live a Healthier and More Environmentally Friendly Life. Dana, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Very thoughtful questions. It was a wonderful experience. (music) 
Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Sherry Duggar. She is the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping communities oppose concentrated animal feeding operations and the multiple negative impacts those operations have on our air, soil, water, public health, quality of life, and so much more. Ms. Duggar's background is based in media and public relations, and prior to joining SRAP, she served as executive director of both the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network and the Indiana Farmers Union. She was the Midwest Outreach Consultant for Earth Justice and a Policy and Communications Consultant for the American Grass-Fed Association. She is an advocate for local and regional food systems, environmental sustainability, humane animal agriculture, and diversified family farming. She currently lives on a small farm in Spencer, Indiana, where she raises goats, alpacas, chickens, and honeybees. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to bring your voice to our listeners. I have been impressed with the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project for many years, and I think that the work that you are doing is important for those of us living in communities where confined or concentrated animal feeding operations have moved in. But before we jump into more about SRAP, what I'd like to know is how do you define socially responsible agriculture? Well, we at SRAP define socially responsible agriculture as a form of agriculture that can rebuild critically needed topsoils, it can reduce water and air pollution, it can strengthen rural economies instead of extracting wealth and health from rural economies. Socially responsible agriculture can also support human health and food security, all while providing climate resilience. So with socially responsible agriculture, what we always like to tell people is that we all thrive instead of just a few. It seems like in small rural communities, there aren't many options for many farmers. They get involved with contracts. They're considered contract growers for the industrial agriculture system. And I don't know that they are aware of alternatives, if alternatives even exist. Yeah, I would agree with that. I find, and we have Craig Watts, I should also say, he's a former contract grower. He worked for us at SRAP as a field team director. And I often have conversations with him and a couple of our other contract growers that we now have on staff and no longer raising animals for contracts. But they are working with us and they're helping to try to get community members to understand what that system looks like. And oftentimes, Craig will say to community you know, members that we talk to, if he knew then what he knows now, he never would have signed on the bottom line. But unfortunately, the bill of sale that is given to them at the time of signing on that bottom line, they oftentimes are fed this line and this narrative that this is a, a winning deal here, and this is the way you can't fail in agriculture, which is absolutely not true. I think 70% of poultry growers being on contract live in poverty. There's so much within that system that is harmful to those contract growers as well as community members who are living around those types of operations. And I think a lot of farmers just don't know that whenever they sign on that dotted line. Well, how have industrial farms gained a stronghold in rural America? Oh my gosh, that's been a long time coming. (laughs) Since the late 70s, I would say, when uh, Earl Butts, who also was a Hoosier, was Secretary of Agriculture and was pushing for that get big or get out mantra that really took a hold in the 80s in food and agriculture. So I think this has been an ongoing problem. The consolidation of the food and agriculture system has been a long time coming. It isn't a problem that just started overnight. And I believe that policies, subsidies, the way that small meat packing processing plants are inspected versus the large scale meat processing plants, all of these problems have been ongoing and built into our system, our policy, for a long time, for decades now. And so this is a problem that we believe, working in the advocacy side of things, that is certainly not going to be solved overnight, certainly not with one aspect, but a whole number of aspects and a whole number of advocates working from various angles to fight the problem. 
Mm-hmm. It's so difficult for consumers to have a push here because we can buy from small family farms if we have access to a farmer's market, for example. But most sure. consumers get their food and most institutions get their food, like hospitals, schools, for example. They get food from the industrial system. And if I go into any of the local supermarkets in my community, well over 90% of that meat or even dairy products, everything is from the industrial system. I don't know how to break free from that stronghold. It's hard. It's hard work to break free from it. And that's coming from somebody who works within the system and who lives out in the country, who can grow her own food, who can go to farmer's markets as well. But it's difficult to be able to get everything that you need from the farmers that are around you. We advocate all the time for communities feeding communities, not for us trying to feed the world as the industrial agriculture motto would like to talk about it. But we need to feed ourselves and we need to be able to put into practice and to put into policy supportive measures to make sure that we can do that, that we can do it, in, as I mentioned, in a socially responsible way. Right. Well, I know that farmers have been struggling in finding processors, for example. I used to buy from a small farmer who had to drive five hours to get to a processing facility. He was raising organic meat and poultry, and in order to go to a USDA-inspected facility, which fit with his USDA organic certification, he had to drive five hours to get to that processing facility. Do you think things are changing so that there'll be more processing, you know, or government funds moving in that direction to support that kind of smaller scale, more humane agriculture? I would like to be optimistic and think that with the Biden administration and their focus on trying to, to inject some of those funds into building out more competitive markets, that that will happen. <laughs> I think it remains to be seen. However, I do, I have good friends who actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Greg Gunthorpe of Gunthorpe Farms in Indiana. He's a well-spoken, widely celebrated advocate and farmer from Indiana. He has one out of, I think, three or four small processing plants on his farm. There's three or four throughout the United States, I think, that are USDA inspected. His is one of them. And he certainly talks all of the time about the problems that are, that he as a farmer, as someone who has a small processing plant and who very successfully not only supports his community by keeping, I think, 20-something families throughout the community working on his farm and in his processing plant, but as a small farmer who does contribute to his local economy and his local communities, he is not supported by the way that his plant is inspected, by the subsidies that are out there and the policies that are out there right now that really make his life difficult, even though he is actually one of the more successful farmers that I know, independent farmers that I know, being able to sell his products into Chicago, into Indianapolis, and so many of the larger cities around him. Well, I've been so impressed with the resources that you have on your website, and I'll provide a link to that. It's sraproject.org. There'll be that link in the show notes. But you've got all kinds of information about the harms that are linked to these industrial farms, also known as CAFOs. And I'm assuming that our listening audience might be familiar with them, but just in case they're not, can you describe what a concentrated animal feeding operation is like? Tell me why we should be aware of this and why they're a problem for public health. Absolutely. We believe that with industrial livestock production comes injustice to these communities that are surrounding these operations, to the environment, to people, to animals, and to our planet, ultimately, with our climate change issues that we're facing today. So our consolidated food and agriculture system, it drives intended family farmers off the land. It abuses the food system workers who are working in those operations. It perpetuates social and racial injustices. It pollutes our air and water. It exacerbates, as, as I mentioned, climate change, and it compromises animal welfare with these operations that are housing sometimes millions of animals in one place. The waste from those millions of animals are oftentimes held in these football field-sized lagoons around the operation. The waste, the manure, and the urine is, is pumped out into these manure lagoons. Those oftentimes spills occur. They have leakage into the surrounding soil and into the waterways. There's a lot of different problems. And then if you can imagine living 400 feet away from, say, 80,000 pigs, how that might smell. So there's odor as well to 
deal with lack of quality of life, et cetera, around these operations. Mm. And if water becomes contaminated, as it often does, say, with nitrates, how does that water supply get cleaned up? Who's overseeing that? We work with government agencies that are supposed to monitor and work with these operations to make sure that they're being regulated and, and that they are cleaning up spills when they do occur. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of capacity in our in our government agencies, and there's not a, sometimes the will to be able to get that work done because there's a lot to do. So we work as much as we can with agencies. We actually have a water rangers program where we teach communities how to monitor their water using EPA standards. And so that really is a program born of creating residents within communities, helping them become scientists to some degree, but helping them do it in a way that is EPA accepted and directed. And so that we can actually help our agencies, our regulatory agencies and our enforcement agencies really do their jobs better and make sure that these corporations and these operations are held accountable for the pollution that they do bring out into these communities. And I don't know how often local departments of health are keeping track of illnesses related to living close to CAFOs. Do you know anything about that? I don't know how often they're checking into that. I do know folks at Johns Hopkins and other researchers that are out there that are looking into the health impacts. Um, certainly at the University of Maryland, Toby Wilson talks a lot about the public health impacts of these operations on these communities. Unfortunately, these operations are oftentimes cited against communities that don't have a lot of political power. They don't have a lot of economic power to fight those operations coming in, and that's who we're working with. These are communities of color. These are low-income communities. They're rural. They don't have a lot of political power, and they don't honestly know what to do when these operations are coming in because they've never been faced with something like this before, and they think they have no options. They find SRAP online or they've, they've heard of us somehow and they come to us and we offer them that free help to help empower them to fight back and to oppose these operations coming in. And I want to give that toll-free line that you have right on your website, 844-367-7727. I'll provide that in the show notes as well. Again, that's 844-367-7727. And you provide free assistance for communities that are facing this kind of pollution when maybe they think that there's nothing out there to help them. Absolutely. We have a field operations team that works directly in that community support program. That includes technical experts, independent farmers, and rural residents who, like these communities, they have actually faced these operations themselves. So we have folks on staff who do I made mention of living across the road from 80,000 hawks. We have someone on staff who, in fact, has a farm across the road from 80,000 hawks. So he has to deal with that situation wow. um, in his own backyard. So, you know, our team offers technical and strategic support to help these people, to educate them and to mobilize their community so that they can navigate those regulatory processes, so they can engage their lawmakers, they can publicize their stories. And ultimately, so they can build coalitions to reject those operations coming in and that they can advocate for that socially responsible food future that we talk about. That's fantastic. Sherry, let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Sherry Duggar. She is the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping communities oppose concentrated animal feeding operations and the many negative impacts that they bring to rural communities to impact our health and our quality of life. You know, I think the economics is so interesting about these operations when they come in. You mentioned this earlier where the promise is, yeah, we're going to bring jobs. This is the way you're going to make a living. What happens in reality when farmers sign that contract with an industrial firm? Yeah, I, I'm not exactly the person that I haven't lived that life, so I don't want to speak too much about that. But I do know in the conversations that I've had with Craig uh, Watts, who's on our staff, as I mentioned, and even with John Eichert, who is also a well-celebrated advocate, and he talks a lot about the economics of industrial agriculture and how it impacts rural communities and depletes the wealth rather than building it. But I do think that contract growers specifically, they are they are kind of locked into these contracts, oftentimes with, I don't know if you're familiar with the tournament system that is a, a payment system that hits farmer against farmer. 
and rewards the farmers who raise the chickens the fastest and the, with the most weight. And then it punishes the ones who don't or who aren't able to or who have more chickens who die, et cetera. And oftentimes they're living in so much debt. They're kind of pushed into debt with constant demands for upgrades on their operations. Once they, Craig, I know, mentioned at one time when he had just finally paid off his debt, the corporate entity that he was contracted with showed up on his farm and made new demands on what he needed to do to upgrade. And I've heard that story over and over and over again from contract growers who feel like it's just a treadmill of debt that they're never able to actually get out of. How do they get out of those contracts? Do they lose money? Do they lose money? Do you mean the actual growers? Yes, the farmers who signed on. Let's say they sign on, but they want to get out. Do you provide legal help to help these individuals get out? Yeah, we have actually in the past, we actually, Susie Crutchfield, who works on our staff, that's her story when she talks about how she found out about SRAP. She was facing bankruptcy at the time as a contract grower. SRAP was able to help provide some of the funds to get a lawyer to be able to essentially not lose her property, not lose her farm. And this was a farm that she's had in her family for decades. And so I think we are able to put them in contact with experts that can provide the technical assistance that they need oftentimes and we're not we don't have you know lawyers on staff to do that but we certainly know people working out there throughout the United States doing that kind of work. Well it's great to have that kind of support. I want to bring up a couple of things that you mentioned. One is climate change and I think we've seen such devastation in rural communities when these huge storms come through and you've got these huge manure pits that often spill and contaminate waterways. With climate change, it seems like there's growing evidence that we don't want the industrial system in place. Do you see more farmers becoming aware of that connection and the problem that climate change brings to the story? Yeah. When I was working with Indiana Farmers Union, I was certainly more connected to what farmers were talking about and what they were thinking in terms of climate change and that sort of thing and weather patterns. Working with SRAP and doing all the work that we do here is a lot more with community members and less so direct contact with farmers experiencing those issues. But certainly I'm well connected with farming organizations all over the United States. And I do think, obviously, weather used to be predictable. Weather patterns used to be a lot more predictable. For farmers, they could actually plan their planting season based on what they felt the weather was going to do, and, and I think that is gone. That is, there's no longer any predictability in our weather. We understand that, and we understand that these dreams are going to occur more and more and more in our weather pattern. That, along with, as we mentioned before, all of the subsidies and all of this, how the system is built right now, none of this helps the farmer, the small independent processor farmer or grower be able to exist and really to build a life and in order to feed their own families and build their own future. It works against them. And so I think farmers realize there's a lot of risk involved with farming. That's why a lot of the younger generations don't want to stick around on the farm because they've seen what their parents have experienced and the struggles that they've had. And until we're able to create policy that supports farmers doing the right thing, that supports you know them rebuilding a soil, that supports these really healthy and sustainable ways of growing and raising food, we're going to struggle with this for a long time. And the, the weather is certainly of urgency that I think is pretty well known to right. everyone at this point. Right. To prepare for this interview, I was listening to an interview that you did with Acres, and you touched on the challenges of industrial ag's influence in Washington, D.C., and I know you have spent a lot of time both at the Indiana State House as well as in Washington, D.C. How do you think we can break that kind of influence from big ag that supports the kinds of policies that uphold the industrial system? Wow, that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the term agency capture, but there's a lot of that that's going on where the government agencies are essentially revolving doors for corporate entities and higher-ups coming from the corporation and then working within the government itself, oftentimes regulating the very corporations or supposedly regulating the very corporations that they were just working for. So there's a lot of, a lot of things happening in Washington, D.C. that don't support a better food and agriculture system. We know that. We're not questioning that. It's just a matter of how we can really start to build relationships with the lawmakers who understand what the issues are or who are eager to learn about what those issues are. 
and how we can really tell through our stories, through our community stories that we work with, through the farmer stories, through everyone who is impacted, and actually consumers as well. I mean, we need all voices to engage on this issue and to understand that if we don't engage on this issue, there are grave, grave consequences to it. How should we engage? What is the best way to do that? Lots of different ways. We're building out a food and farm network. It's a new program at Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. And what it is, is to really try to build movement power. So when you're in working in, the, in this arena, oftentimes we talk about you have two forms of power. You have either power with lots of money to influence those decisions that are made in state houses or you know on the federal level, or you can use people power. And so what that looks like is all kinds of different things. That looks like people writing to their letters, writing letters to the editor or opinion pieces they can send to their local newspapers. It looks like people doing interviews with folks like you and doing podcasts and learning how to talk and meet with their legislators at a state level, at a local level, getting involved in some of those different government positions. When I was at Women's Food and Agriculture Network, we had a plaintiff politics program, which I believe, I hope they still do it. If they don't, I really hope they do. But it really is about getting women interested who know intimately food and agriculture and its importance on their lives, on all aspects of our lives, and getting them into seats in office. I want to ask you about your thoughts on COVID. We saw horrific stories about the meatpacking plants and the workers there who were truly abused, forced to go to work. They were inadequately prepared to work safely with the virus. How do you think COVID has influenced where agriculture might be going? Do you think it was a wake-up call enough to really result in some policy changes? It has. It has some ripple effects. I do think that D.C. is in better agreement about some of the problems within our food system and some of the fragility of the food system, certainly because of COVID. I think while the pandemic was rolling out, so to speak, in the beginning, I do think that we all hoped that it would have a lot more of a longer lasting impact, not only on policy and what we're supporting versus what we're not supporting, but really on the public's memory of what happened and how our grocery store shelves were empty and how prices went up on certain products and still continue to go up on certain products and therefore hurting the pocketbooks of consumers and not not knowing where their food's coming from, not knowing whether there's going to be food on the shelves, et cetera. So that's a system that isn't working when something like a pandemic can occur and everything shuts down. Yeah, in my own community, what I saw was that the farmers who were at the market could not keep up with demand. So there really was this stronger push towards more regionalized food systems. And then, of course, there were the problems with workers just becoming ill and not being able to work and the injustice of that, really. Absolutely. There's injustice, as I mentioned, built throughout all of the industrial agriculture system to essentially everyone who's involved with that except for those corporations profiting from that system. It really showed all of the the bad spots along the system of what's happening and who's harmed in that system, for sure. And I, I, I agree. We saw a lot of local farmers who were experiencing booms in their business during that time whenever there was a food shortage in our grocery stores. But I think, unfortunately, that didn't last. And what we were talking about earlier about how hard it is to, to secure that food and to get everything that you need from local sources, people go for what's easiest. They go for what they can afford or what's cheapest. I understand all of that, all of those conveniences of life. Life is difficult. So... I understand wanting to go to one store to get everything makes sense logistically, but I think when you think about all of the externalized costs of making those purchases and and what that system looks like on your life and on your health and on the future of your family, hopefully I would think that maybe people will rethink some of those choices. You know, it's interesting you brought up the price issue and the way I'm aware of how we've been sold on this industrial model is that, hey, this is how we get cheap protein. And nobody wants to pay more. Everybody wants a bargain. But as you mentioned, we are not really aware of all of the costs. They're not reflected at the cash register. But when people are hurting economically, they do want the cheapest 
price for food. So how do you address that issue of cheap food and the industrial model giving us the cheapest way to eat? I think that there's around $25 billion in subsidies going to the industrial food model. Wow. I think if people, and I don't quote, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but I feel like that's what I recall. If people understood that that's taxpayer money paying for a system, $25 billion worth, we, we think, around there, paying for a system that feeds them foods loaded with chemicals, foods that are heavily processed in a system that pollutes our water, that pollutes our air, that potentially gives us lots of different health issues and health problems that takes away quality of life that is actually directly related to the reason why our rural communities are boarded up and why they don't have grocery stores and doctors and dentist offices and and butcher shops and all of the things that used to be in small towns across America. So there's so many impacts, and then you can talk about the, the climate change and the animal welfare and all of those things. But those are all externalized costs to this system that we pay for on the front through our taxes, and normally we pay for on the back through our health care issues that crop up, like you know, when we get cancer or diabetes and lots of other things from it. Right. We just have a minute left, so I just want to give you an opportunity to inform our listeners about anything that I might not have brought forth. Absolutely. Well, I think if there's anyone out there that's facing an incoming industrial agriculture operation, I invite you all to come to our website. It's sraproject.org. There is a helpline, as you mentioned earlier. People can call us, and we will jump into action to figure out who they need to talk to what technical experts are out there. If they need legal help, we will connect them to whoever we know that can help them. There's a lot of things that we can do. And if people just want to engage in the food and agriculture system in building a socially responsible food and agriculture system, we do have a food and farm network. We would love to have people coming on board to, to be able to advocate that we could, we're, we're developing a policy toolkit to help people understand how to talk to their lawmakers. We're doing lots of things to create materials so that we can help people engage in building a better food system. That's fantastic. We've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Sherry Duggar. She is the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. I will provide a link to that website as well as the toll-free number, which is 844-367-7727. Sherry, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
listening to KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Jazz Lives, right after these news headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM.